Diversity, it might be what's holding your team back and you may not know it yet and may not know how to solve it. For that reason, I'm really excited to tell you that Data Futurology has established a partnership with She Loves Data and we're doing a series dedicated on improving diversity in your organization, in your teams, in your workplace, so you can get the most value out of your teams, out of your data and create products that the market really wants. Tune in every week as we speak with executives and female leaders from all over the world on how they have targeted and improved the diversity on their teams. And you can find out what we can learn from them. We are thrilled as a She Loves Data to be part of the Tough Futurology podcast, where we will showcase some female leaders, but the leaders from tech industry. And we will be talking about strategies, about data, about biases, and about diversity. Join us. I wanted to say a big thank you to our sponsors. One of our sponsors is Shine Solutions Group. Shine Solution Group is a technology consultancy that has been empowering their enterprise and government partners with pragmatic technology solutions for over 20 years. Learn more at shinesolutions.com. Also a big thank you to SAS, giving you the power to know. Through innovative software and services, SAS empowers and inspires data advocates around the world to transform data into intelligence. Committed to diversity, did you know about the Women in Analytics Network that they have? It's a SaaS-sponsored networking program aimed to strengthen diversity in the analytics field. Check it out in the show notes below. They're definitely committed to it as they're helping us with this diversity series too. I also would like to tell you about Growing Data. Growing Data is a consultancy that helps organizations unlock the full potential of their data. They work with some of Australia's most successful organizations from finance. They work with people like ANZ Bank, through to biotechnology companies like CSL, and all the way to construction, working with companies like Metricon. They help these and many more companies solve their most challenging data-related problems in analytics, machine learning, data engineering, and data governance. While I was at ANZ Bank, I got the pleasure to work with the team at Growing Data, and I can tell you for a fact, they are top-notch. I highly recommend Growing Data. Find out more at growingdata.com.au. Also, a big thank you to Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading data specialist recruitment business. They are experts in recruitment strategy and delivery for analytics and data teams. They are the go-to recruitment business for all your data roles in Australia, and they can help both with permanent hires and short-term project-focused data resources. I've used Talent Insights in the past, and I've always found them fantastic to work with. Visit them at talentinsights.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm thrilled to be hosting this episode on the very meaty topic, and it is the role of Chief Data Officer. Rewind a few years back and people would be asking you why even people from data background would get a seat in the C-level suite. And today it's pretty much clear that we need to take care of the data. We need to have people who are deriving a data strategies um, as a part of the business plan for the organizations. We need to have uh, someone taking care of the asset that data is today. And what do we want to chat about in today's episode is what does the role of chief data officer is? What are the deliverables? And it seems that 
every office and every organization needs to have chief data officer. And is that the situation? Joining me today, exploring this topic is Celine Lokotonek, Chief Data Officer and Innovation Officer at the Bank of Singapore. Welcome, Celine. And then we have Shami Kundu you, at Standard Anna. Chartered Bank. A very warm welcome to both of you. I will start with one question. You both have very different background. Celine is coming from more business and innovation, and uh, you, Shamik, are coming from technology background. Tell me, is this important what your background is, and how does that influence your role? Can we start with you, Shamik, please? Sure. I, I don't actually just have a, a technology background. I'm, I'm, I ran our innovation lab uh, and uh, for two years, and I'm also an ex-management consultant. Um, so it's not necessarily true that I have a technology background. But I think to your broader question, uh, it is a it is a role that requires aspects of technology, uh, aspects of um, innovation, aspects of uh, quite a lot of cultural change and stakeholder management, and certainly deep understanding of the business. Um, so uh, I, I think, uh, and of course, uh, a passion for data. So it, it almost doesn't matter because if you don't have technology, um, you can, uh, if you don't have some re relatively fundamental understanding of technology um, and technology for data, you can't be achieved effective chief data officer. And similarly, if you don't have a business understanding, you can't be a good chief data officer. So wherever you come from, you need to build up some of the other stuff along the way. So that's the combination you say is the ideal setup. Yeah, yeah. What, what is your take, Celine? Yes, I do. I do definitely believe that Tamik is right. I mean, personally, myself, I'm a sinologist by education. So I learn about Chinese language and culture and business and economy. Uh, but I learned technology through working with um, engineers and data scientists and, and our IT folks as well. Um, because anyway, in the field of um, data related technology, things are changing so fast that you need to permanently upskill yourself. So you need to be um, on the, you know, um, on the lookout for uh, what are the new technology, what are the new vendors, the new startup, you know, that are emerging and look uh, at it, um, I believe, with a, with a market trend rather than really deep uh, uh, focus. I do work with engineers and data engineers and I've worked with technical um, uh, background people all my life. This is probably where I picked up, you know, uh, all the knowledge that I do have today on that uh, on that matter. So at the end of the day, um, it's a lot of um, uh, people and and change, as as Shamik says, they call the management. And how can you actually uh, showcase to the business uh, how much uh, data can bring as a value to them? I believe there was there is a study from one of the big four consulting companies saying that any successful data transformation. 20% is about tech, 50% is about people, the mindset of the people, making them understand what, what, what data is about, upskilling them because their role will change because they need to increase their data literacy and their understanding of what data can do. And 30% is about process change, uh, process reengineering, whenever you are implementing any type of data product. And process are, are, are drafted uh, or uh, operated by people. So you need to change the people first. Um, so yes, a technology background is, is uh, technology understanding is needed, but the most important is how do you manage the people to transform the organization? That's my take. That's, that's great. You actually touched on the topic of uh, what is the role of chief data officer? 
So we see many um, job descriptions that combine data, technology, but as well innovation. You mentioned data products. Um, how does a chief data officer role um, functions from your perspective? And what is the main goal for this role? Can we start with you, Shami? Sure. Um, so I guess um, I think it differs by industry. It also differs by maturity of the organization with respect to data, um, and 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 in some instances even differs by geography. Um, but I guess for my sins, I, I am the oldest surviving chief data officer in any bank. I've been CDO for seven years. I think I'm also one of the oldest CDOs in the region altogether. Uh, and I've seen most of the roles uh, along the way, all except one. So I think there's a there's, there's several different roles. There's no clear answer on what which one is the right one. There is a there's a broadly a defensive and offensive and an enabling role. Uh, the defensive role. Uh, in banks in particular, we'll tend to focus on data quality and with things like ensuring BCBS compliance, ensuring that the data for uh, financial crime compliance is, is correctly um, uh, is correct, the fact that regulatory reports are correct, or even the fact that customer <clears throat> interaction is, is empowered with the correct background data. So that has been the origin of most chief data officers uh, traditionally. In fact, you could argue that the trigger for most banks was, uh, for most of the older banks, was the old Basel II, which might be before many people's time, which was uh, 12, 13 years ago. Um, then beyond that, um, you'd have, um, you, 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 so that's the diff one part of defense, but you also have things like privacy, uh, you have retention uh, for us as a cross-border bank, um, data sovereignty. Uh, all of these aspects are what we call the defensive aspect of data. Uh, in banks, there's banking secrecy, which is a sister um, policy for, for privacy. Um, there's also more recently um, data ethics and in particular AI ethics. All of this is defensive. How do you build the guardrails that the bank must follow, the organization must follow in order to use data and analytics safely. Then there's then there's then there's a an offensive leg, which um, in my case has been relatively um, uh, limited, although with some exceptions, but but it is broader in some other organizations. This includes most obviously data science, which I have never uh, owned, but other other CDAOs have owned. Um, so the data scientist teams themselves, um, but also it includes um, you know other aspects like doing collaborations with uh, with with data related and analytics related startups. So this is where, in my instance, the entire uh, entire running of the innovation lab for two years was part of that as well. So so that's the second one, um, defense and offense. And then underneath that, you have the enablers and the extent to which the enablers are skewed towards defense or offense differs again by. By, by bank um, or by organization. But this includes most obviously technology. Um, that includes the architecture, could include the delivery. In my case, it did include for two years the actual delivery of data-related technology, um, data strategy, data architecture, a lot of the education and awareness and upskilling of, of the general staff, not just the data staff around data and analytics. All of these are crucial enablers. And you actually, it's not just 
enablers and it will happen on its own. Many CDOs have an active role in, in, in making these enablers happen. Now, the important thing about the enablers is they can go both ways. Even for defensive purposes, you might need cultural change like you do for privacy or data ethics. Um, you, you, you obviously need technology for both defense and offense. Um, so, so it's not one or the other. Um, you, the, 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 the nature of the enabler will differ based on the organization's focus. So I think it's almost a wrong question to say, what is the role of a CDO? It's more appropriate to know all of these things exist, right? Um, now, what a particular CDO does depends on many things. Where is the organization in their, um, in their maturity? So in our case, when we started the role, it was largely defensive. Over time, it became a bit more offensive. Uh, now it's probably back to defense and enablement, partly because the offense part has moved into individual businesses who have their own analytics leads, as an example. But other organizations will be different. That's, um, I see Salini, you are nodding. Um, let me then ask you a slightly different um, you know, uh, question. You moved from insurance as a chief data and innovation officer into banking. How was the change from industry to industry, despite the fact it's still in finance? But do you see that the role has changed dramatically? And if yes, how and in what areas? Offensive, defensive, enablers. So to be very honest, uh, not that much. When you when you when you talk about financial services, from insurance to banking, uh, the role of a chief data officer is, uh, for me, at least the scope that I got today in my current role in Bank of Singapore, compared to what I had prior to AXA, uh, is uh, is about the same. Uh, and this is why I'm chief data and innovation officer, as um, as what Shamik uh, uh, rightly said. Uh, I have um, uh, I oversee the um, data analytic platform uh, implementation, so more working with uh, with our tech colleague uh, what are the business requirement and definition for analytics and uh, being able to enable the organization I oversee as well uh, a lot the the upskilling and training strategy as well as the organization uh, when it comes to um, data and analytics uh, my view is that we need to democratize data so um, having data analytics use cases done by a, a central team is not efficient nowadays. You need to upskill the various businesses uh, into being able to use their data to take data-driven decision, uh, whatever their scope is, uh, if it's more on a compliance role or product role or risk role, uh, all of them have their specific view and needs of the data. And th Thirdly, um, the overall data governance that is mentioned by um, Shaming very rightly, that is very important when it comes to data management, who is owning the data, who is responsible of those data assets and taking care of the data quality, uh, enforcing data protection and data privacy, as well as, you know, the nascent um, ethic and AI topic. And all of those three pillars, so the platform, the people, and the, the governance um, are actually fundamental uh, for any organization to be able to deliver whatever type of use cases um, uh, that analytic can bring. It can go from uh, basic uh, uh, reporting automation to more in-depth analytic about what happened in the past or more predictive um, uh, use cases where you can kind of define which is the right product for your the right customer at the right moment of his customer journey. Um, you have usually two different type of use cases, but this is right for bank as well as for any other type of industry. 
you have the gross use case. Okay, how can I sell more product or better targeted product to my customer? How do you target the right product to the right person? I don't see uh, efficiency for fraud detection, for compliance, um, you know, uh, AML, um, all of those. How do we do more efficiently our control uh, uh, work as financial institution? So in 2016, one of the big banks in Australia uh, had a vision that the role of CDO will be temporary, that it's going to actually transfer into chief analytics officers. And you both mentioned that enabling of uh, access to the data for the entire organizations and driving the insights, artificial intelligence, that this is kind of the next phase. How do you see it? How, how is the role going to evolve, Shamik? What is your take on that? So first of all, on on that specific point, uh, I, I was in 2016. I was also saying that uh, my role will become uh, redundant relatively soon, and I was saying that for for three reasons. I think one, on the uh, on the defense side, uh, it was becoming clear that much of the early data governance stuff has to be done in the businesses and functions, and there was relatively uh, little value in trying and centralizing it in one place. On the offensive side, um, the businesses and functions finally began to believe in it and obviously hired senior people who are closely aligned with the business uh, to try and drive that. And then finally, on the enablers, the respective technology and, and people team, uh, HR teams were actually getting stepping up and were getting more and more. I'm not so sure anymore whether I agree with my hypothesis, not because I want to keep doing the same role forever, but because um, uh, less about me personally, but I, I do see that in the last three to four years, um, the governance challenges itself have become much, much more complex. It is fundamentally different from four years ago with everything from data portability uh, and open banking, if you're in banking, but more broadly data portability to much bigger focus on data sovereignty and moving data across boundaries. Obviously people are far more aware about privacy and its implications post GDPR and post, post uh, Cambridge, Cambridge Analytica and many other breaches. There's much more focus on cybersecurity, which is not the same, but is closely linked to the privacy side. Um, and then of course, there's the whole area around ethics and, and AI governance, which I personally have played some role in the with the MAS to, to drive as well. So I think the governance aspects, if anything, has become far more serious. There's an argument which says that the enablement angle and the technology element of the um, enablement angle, as well as some of the, uh, you know, the offense part will still remain federated because the more the organization becomes mature in using data, I think that aspect will need to remain federated, to remain agile and to remain aligned to the business strategy. But the governance part is getting far more difficult and it is impossible to build the relative rele relevant level of expertise um, if you're not 100% of the time thinking about data. So that defensive part of the governance part, as I called it, I think that's here to stay for 10 years at least, uh, in whatever form. It might be called chief data officer. It might be called chief ethics officer. It doesn't really matter. So paradoxically, if you're a CDO or want to be CDO out there, if you want to do exciting stuff, I'm not sure you should aspire to the CDO title uh, because the exciting stuff tends to be much more business aligned uh, and will be in larger organizations. Maybe in smaller organizations, it can be combined together. Whereas the more defensive stuff, actually, if anything, it's going much, much more, uh, much heavier. And, and therefore, I do believe it requires somebody who's a career data person. 
and and rightly so, right? We need to take care of the data and the governance rules and the absolutely is so important yeah. part of it. Now, yeah. tell me, with so many um, kind of chief chiefs, uh, kind of owning the data, owning information, um, how does it work in terms of um, who's responsible for what? Um, because in the organization, data is becoming more and more important. It plays a critical role in, you know, being competitive, staying out there, being relevant to the clients and consumers, customers. Who owns the data at the end? Is it- so I only say this, I only say this half in jest. If there's a problem with the data, then I own it. Um, if there's uh, money to be made out of it or insights to be gained out of it, then others own it. And I only say this half in jest because I think people have become much more aware of data ownership and the fact that whether it's their data or not, because it's rarely the data of a chief finance officer or of any any person in an organization never really owns data. Uh, the data is owned by whoever the data subjects are ultimately. But even as a custodian, I think business and function leaders have become much more aware that, oh, we have certain data and we need to make more use of that. So from the perspective of this data is for me to leverage, I think there's a lot more understanding of that ownership. But when it comes to okay, I need to make sure this is correct. I need to make sure it's protected appropriately. I need to make sure that its use is appropriate against all the privacy and ethical considerations. It is not yet clear that people have, let alone accepted responsibility. I'm not even sure people have understood what taking responsibility means. So again, it's a bit of a adverse selection, but if you want to be a true deep chief data officer, particularly in large organizations, you have to bear that cross almost. You have to bear that cross of saying, I will be the person who will enable this for all of you by taking ownership, not of the data itself, but of the structure and the framework to define that ownership by giving you the tools to embed that ownership. But really, I'm going to do very close handholding when it comes to the ownership from a governance perspective. But the moment it comes to ownership from a business enablement perspective, I'm going to step back a little bit because you know what to do with your data, or at least you should know, otherwise you shouldn't be in the business. It might not sound attractive, but in some ways that is the direction where at least in large organizations, it is going. There are very few instances in larger firms where data and analytics has been brought together. There are more firms where data and architecture have been brought together or tech strategy have been brought together. But data and analytics together in large uh, financial services organizations is relatively rare, uh, certainly for the global firms. So what is your take, Celine? No, yes, I, I definitely agree with uh, everything that Shamika rightly said. And, um, and, and the other point as well is that whenever there is issue with, I mean, what is data issue is the first question because it can come from anything. It can come from a, a system configuration, a glitch or a defect in a system or, or, you know, some UAT that has not properly been done. It can come from process issue. Uh, how are we capturing the data today and how do we ensure that, um, um, that they are captured properly by, by the people that are entering those into the system? Uh, how do we as well bring back that knowledge of data management and data quality back to the business and back to the, I would say, more the, the digital uh, product owners in order to ensure that um, um, the policy and the, and the quality policy are coded at source at the time when we are capturing the data. Uh, and um, 
I definitely agree with Shamik on the fact that um, uh, you have several responsibilities as chief data officer, and mainly it's whenever you have any data problems, should it come from um, aggregation, uh, should it come from data capture, from uh, system configuration issue, then it's for you, um, the business will expect for you to try and find a solution, which means that you need to have the capability to put all the stakeholders at the same table uh, from the data owner to the, you know, the IT custodian or um, uh, the architecture in order to all together find solutions. And um, that, that's where I'm, I'm also very keen on using design thinking approach whenever there are some uh, um, data issue in order to really go deep into the problem. Where is the problem coming from? Is it uh, from data capture side, from the system or, you know, uh, maybe role and responsibility that are not clearly defined? So lately, I had many discussions with the C-level or top management people about who owns the data strategy. And even like Celine, you and I, we talked about it a few weeks ago even. And because um, my take is that data strategy is such an important part of the entire business planning. How does that work uh, with the chief data officer? Do you guys deploy and own and create and define the entire data strategy? And how does it work as putting a data strategy uh, into the entire business plan. I would love to hear your thoughts on that and see how you do it in your organizations. Celine, you want to go first? Yeah, thanks, Shamik. Uh, I, I, I can share my uh, my uh, my view. Uh, we got a data board that is made of the um, management committee member uh, meeting on the on the monthly basis, and they do own the data strategy. So we have defined the three pillar: the platform, the people, the governance. Um, that are the fundamental pillar that we need to address in order to accelerate the transformation of the organization. So. All of the management committee members own the data strategy. Uh, of course, as um, as CDO and central data team, it's part of, of my role to propose and to um, and to orientate uh, and work with the various stakeholder from IT to HR to business to um, uh, to other governance um, uh, controlling functions such as risk or compliance, in order to um, come with a proposal of topic uh, on on those monthly uh, scheduled meeting. But at the end of the day, the management does own the data strategy of the bank because it needs to be reflected in any uh, of their own uh, business um, activity and priorities. So I, I would tend to agree with it, with what you said, which is ultimately it's the CDO's role to pull that together and it's the management team's role to, to bless it because it can't be his strategy alone. What I would say, though, is I'm never clear on what data strategy means. I know you'd say, why does the oldest CEO in the industry say there's no such thing as data strategy? And it's a bit like, what is data quality? It's a bit like, what is data strategy? Well, ultimately, data strategy is the strategy with which you manage data. But then you look at what does managing data require? And actually, there's only one small component which is unique to data, and that is data management, which is literally the uh, the, the the metadata work around you know tagging all of your data with the appropriate um, metadata and making sure that is available. Everything else is either system architecture or it is people strategy around data-related talent and indeed about broader bank-wide talent or about, in some cases, procurement of data, many cases, partnership, which is why you have your, the innovation role and I used to have at some point. So I suppose my view is to the extent there is a data strategy, it should be owned by the CDO or proposed by the CDO and uh, validated by the MT. But we should be wary of reading too much into the two words data strategy because 
there should not be a data strategy in isolation. Ultimately, you need to start, we always start with the business strategy. And, and I'll illustrate that in a minute with an example. And whatever that business strategic objective is, uh, to enable that, you need, you'll have some data and analytics objectives. And then to enable that, you'll need to have, put certain things in place. And the CDO's role is often in that, in that third piece, but they can't actually define the first and the second. So to take the example, you know, one of our key pillars publicly communicated and well-known as a, as a trade bank, one of our key pillars on the strategy side is to become, is to sustain our network bank position, meaning we bank networks, we, and we bank, sorry, we bank organizations across our network. We bank them from, uh, from, you know, from Korea to Vietnam to India, if you're, let's say, a large Korean conglomerate. Our job is to, is to, uh, is to, you know, get uh, get the bank um, bank's clients served across all of those footprints. Now, if that is our objective, data and analytics plays a very key role for that, but it should not be a separate objective on its own. It, the data and analytics objective needs to be aligned to that business strategy. So that's why I think it's difficult to define data strategy in isolation, but to the extent that you need a call out of the bank's broader strategy, how it is supported by data and analytics, and what needs to happen in each of the enablers to make that support work, that should be owned by the CTO, certainly. Sounds very good. Um, you touched on the analytics and uh, we talked um, about the innovation and innovation is often linked to artificial intelligence and especially in your industry. I would like to understand what's your perspective on the evolution of artificial uh, intelligence and the uh, impact of the ethics discussions we have around AI on the real deployment of artificial intelligence into you know, the productions, products, uh, services to make our, at the end, offering for our consumers, customers out there better. Celine, do you wanna sure, sure. start? Yes, I'll, I'll start because I know that Shamik has a lot of knowledge, especially when it comes to the ethic in AI and deployment to the Veritas sure. Consortium with MES. But um, my view is that um, AI will bring a lot of efficiency uh, to, the, um, to the financial uh, services industry when it comes to managing risk or you know, um, uh, anti-money laundering um, type of uh, use cases. So this is definitely uh, needed. There is a question as well that um, coming from another background from financial industry, uh, being years working in manufacturing, um, you know, there is this concept of th three line of defense in, in, in the financial industry world. So you have the first line of defense that is usually the front office staff the people doing the sales then you got the second line of defense that are the people defining the policy and the word policy that are going that are, are trying to frame the overall governance and get you get the third line of defense which is the internal audit that is coming and controlling that the policy are in place the framework are in place and that the people are actually respecting it and it's properly implemented um, so it with ai becoming much more it, ubiquitous, I think that those roles will change. And this is um, quite important to, um, you know, note that you can develop data science and AI within your organization to deploy models, but how are you actually transforming and changing 
those second line of defense and third line of defense role, not to even talk about the fourth line of defense that is usually the regulator of any financial institution. How do they adapt to be able to um, not only come and, you know, audit on a yearly basis or, you know, on a point in time, a specific policy, but be able to monitor on real time, uh, how are those algorithms behaving, you know, and when there is a problem in terms of, you know, accuracy, for example, what are the remediation action? And again, who is responsible? There is an overall uh, governance of who is the model owner, who is the model developer, how do you maintain it? And then after who takes the responsibility at the end of the day, because, well, the model might have been developed by someone, but if this person leaves, you know, then who is ultimately responsible and accountable uh, for those um, uh, algorithms and what are the method to um, also define uh, what is uh, ethic, fairness uh, uh, within within algorithm, and um, and with that, I think I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pass it over to Shamik because <laughs> he has much more knowledge than me on that on that topic through his. Uh, you know, uh, you've years you've said it much better than <laughs> you've said it much better than I would. So I, I'll I'll actually not talk about that aspect. Maybe I'll go back to the start of the question. I mean, first of all. Is it important? And if so, why is it important? I'll probably spend a little bit of time. Uh, maybe there was an implied question there, which is if how, how much has been the uptake and what is the barrier? And is the lack of clarity around ethics a barrier? So I'll answer those two questions. I'll not go so much into how to make it ethical because I think there's a lot of conversations on that. Uh, is AI important for, for financial services? Absolutely. So I do want to add, I think we in financial services, because we have a lot of money to spend, we tend to have uh, inflated views, and it's great that you've come from manufacturing, Celine, because frankly, even in manufacturing and certainly in healthcare, in in public government services, in in drug discovery, uh, in you know self-driving cars, across so many other industries, the impact of AI can be so much more than ours, right? So uh, we should give ourselves a little less airs, and you should say, yeah, we have a lot of money to invest, and that helps us with the adoption of AI, but let's not pretend that we are the most advanced um, use case for AI. We're not. But with that up on the side, I do think AI has a purpose. And here, maybe, Selena, I'll build slightly on what you said. I don't just think it's about efficiency. I think of that efficiency less in terms of what it can contribute to the bottom line. Yes, it can. But frankly, so can traditional kinds of automation. It's really more about expanding the safe space in which we can operate as banks. Now, if you're a bank, what do you worry about? You you are here to transfer risk between various parts of the economy safely, right? And by using AI, you can do that risk transfer and risk management in a much more effective way. I don't just mean credit risk, et cetera. I just mean every aspect of the risk from onboarding a customer to whether I should advise somebody to buy a particular product or not, or whether I even have the human capacity to advise a customer who's not going to have as much AUM as the other guy, to whether I can give someone credit, well, I might not have been able to do otherwise. But with the use of not just AI, but AI and alternate forms of data and even traditional analytics, I am of the firm belief that we can expand the space in which financial services firms operate. And that should be the mission of AI, is the mission of AI, frankly, in most financial services firms, right? So everything you hear about compliance, risk, uh, credit, all of these use cases are really trying to do that. It would have been impossible for a human to extend that decision without some kind of additional data in AI, and that's what they're doing. So it's important. Where are we today? 
we are nowhere close to even scratching, I, I would say, 10-15% of the potential. And this I say as a bank that has been using AI, at least in the Singapore context, for the longest time. I mean, we've been using it since 2016, in, in a, not necessarily for Singapore, but out of our group headquarters here, mainly in the marketing side now, now in other areas. And there's a lot long way to go. And the real reason for that is that actually while the technology has matured, there isn't always data uh, to to help with the machine learning algorithms in some of the areas that we care the most about. I mean, many banks that have built some kind of credit models, even with traditional analytics, um, but certainly with AI, have seen their models crumble with COVID-19, for example, right? Uh, but even before that, even before COVID-19, you want to detect financial crime, absolutely holy grail of AI. Well, guess what? In order to detect something as financial crime, at least if you're using supervised learning, you need to know that this transaction was financial crime. But all we do is detect potential financial crime, then we go and report it to a regulator and we never hear back. So if you don't have positive labeling of that data, you can't train the algorithm. So the real issues around AI, to your, to your original question, uh, Yana, the, the real issues around AI adoption are not about uh, yet, not yet about ethics. They are about data availability. They are about data quality. They are about systems not being suited to take data in real time and make decisions. They're about culture, education, fear, lots of other things. I am yet to come across ethics being a barrier simply because there aren't that many unethical things we can do as a bank. I mean, sorry, sorry, let me correct myself. I'm, I'm sure lots of people will challenge me on that. I'm saying with data, there's not that many unethical things we could do using an algorithm. I could either deny credit to somebody where I should not have done that, or more serious, I could deny somebody life insurance or medical insurance. I think that is a slightly more serious issue, right? Those are the only areas. And there's so much else in banking that the opportunity is huge. So there is some distance to go before ethics starts becoming a barrier to the use of AI in financial services, except maybe for insurance underwriting. That doesn't mean we don't have to worry about all this. We have to. But actually, if we just worry about privacy around basic bank values and ethics, and of course, um, Celine talked about a lot of the principles around model risk management, which banks already have for decades. If we just use that, we're more than in a good position to do it. So it's more more about using the frameworks we already have to support the use of AI. I, I got one question for you, Shamin, uh, uh, because um, uh, one, one thing that always you know made me love since I, I joined the financial industry uh, sector is about you know the explainability and the fairness you know of algorithm when we're talking about ethic and and you rightly mentioned like for example the underwriting on, uh, of an insurance policy you know and now it seems that we are we are requesting from the AI you know to explain why did it took this decision and not the other one you know and but when you are looking at how it it happens today, whether it's for a loan request or uh, an insurance request, do we actually explain to the customer today without the use of AI, why has his um, policy been rejected? Why has his loan application been rejected? It seems that we are requesting um, um, the AI and machine learning algorithm to be much more transparent than the, the human being is currently, you know, themselves in, in our um, yeah. manual process of doing things. What's your view Absolutely. on that? Absolutely. No, absolutely. That is true. And it was, by the way, debated in two different working groups. I won't, can't name the regulators because they were both um, actually three different regulatory groups, um, consultation groups that I'm part of. In all three, we started off by saying, will you hold the algorithm to a higher standard than the human? We all started by saying no. 
And in the end, we all agreed yes, but for a different reason, not for the individual cases. I think the difference, Celine, was the use of AI is driving uh, data-driven decision-making to areas that it was not uh, there at all in the non-AI world. So it's one thing to say, if AI is replacing something that a human is doing like for like, why should we hold it to a different accountability? But in many instances, you are beginning to use AI in a way that there wasn't a human equivalent. Now, in those instances, you cannot say what would have been the human equivalent. So as an example, if I am using AI to authenticate somebody, um, as we are doing in one of our markets, using their national ID to do a facial recognition, or you can say, well, when there was a human being, didn't we check? But the reality is a human being would have checked the face and it would have been very rare that they would say, yeah, this document is not the same. Even if they were, the human being in front of them could have said, yes, it is me. What do you mean this person is not me? It's me, see, it's me. But when you're using a purely automated mechanism, that that freedom to appeal is not there in many cases, which is often there um, if you're doing really face-to-face. So I think that is the answer. The answer is yes, it is being held to a higher standard. Is it fair? Probably not. But given that data-driven decision-making is becoming much more uh, pervasive across the industry, I think that is the direction to go. Certainly, three different regulators did come to that view um, in in, in discussions that, that I've been part of. But I believe that in the example that you just gave, it's better that the AI takes the decision because it seems that the person was trying to fraud with another document that is IP, so, correct? Interestingly, interestingly, we had an instance during COVID-19 where somebody was wearing a mask and they did get authenticated correctly. And we went and complained to the algorithm because uh, algorithm provider saying it was, we explicitly said you should not allow people with masks uh, at that time before pre-COVID. How come it got allowed? <laughs> so in some ways the algorithm was too good, but in this instance, it was correct. It, it didn't do a wrong authentication. But as you make the point today, I think I know you started this on a lighter note, but I think the point is when something is in the background and you don't know how it works, you don't think about it, you don't feel like you're an expert in that. It's, oh, it's an underwriter. All they do is they've they've been there and actually they've just been doing this. Leave them to make the decision. When then everybody is an amateur data scientist and say, well, I can work out the algorithm. Then I think the visibility and the pressure on the algorithm is a bit more. So now everyone has a view on whether it is the Apple card or whether it is the England school results or anything like that. Everyone has a view and we can't help it one way or the other. People will actually challenge. So we should, we better get used to it, is what I would say. Maybe one of the answers would be actually to train the actuaries and the underwriter to become themselves data scientists so they would be able to kind of train the model and yeah. code them, you know. Exactly. To, you I think know, that is exactly right. Principle. Which is which is what, of course, one of the early AI philosophies, which was expert systems, if you want to call that AI, that's roughly what it was. And in many cases, that is exactly what we try and do with AI. We try and train it using experts. So exactly, that's that's where we need to go. I think we. Sorry, need I'm to conscious we've spent a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. Please go but, ahead. But but I love this discussion because it's so important. You know, we are talking about AI um, on a, so many different le- uh, levels, and as you said, everyone is an expert nowadays. So uh, this discussion is so important, and maybe we should have actually another topic on on exactly you know going a little deeper on that. But um, let me ask you one more question because we are 
we've heard here in the previous episodes, um, a lot of discussion around diversity and how diversity leads a better results. You know, whether it is in product innovation or whether it is in some, you know, uh, business uh, tasks. What's your view, and what's uh, what's the diversity around data in uh, in your view and in your organizations, and does that really drive a better results? And how do we measure it? Uh, to to avoid the, the 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 woman in the room talking about diversity, which itself is one of the big problems with diversity conversations, I'll start, um, and then I'll let you pick up, Celine, if that's okay. I, I think there's clearly the point about in 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 training AI, you need to have diverse data, but that's not what you're talking about. This is more about diversity in the CDO and associated organizations. I absolutely believe I absolutely believe we need um, diversity, and not necessarily just gender. And it's because of your first question, which is, what does it take to become CDO? Is it technology background? Is it business background? The answer is the CDO is one of the few roles in the bank. I repeat, one of the few roles in the bank that needs as much holistic knowledge as, let's say, the CEO, not just knowledge, experience. So you need, as Celine mentioned, you need to know data, you need to know culture, you need to know technology, you need to know the business. So. By definition, if you don't have a diverse group in the truest sense, you just will not make the right decision. So that's one thing I would say, which is from a knowledge-based skill set side, you need diverse. But also from a mindset or, 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 or kind of intrinsic characteristics perspective, you actually do need a mix of people who are big champions of data, who's spread the news about some exciting thing we are doing and look, you got to get excited. We're doing such cool stuff. And then you need people who are basically hardcore auditor-like people who will always try and find their their whole hypothesis in life is what could go wrong. That's what I need to do. So you need deep introverts. You need deep extroverts. You need people who are very good at articulating themselves. You need people who sit in a room with pointy heads and, and, and just decide to work on the data. It's by definition, the CDO organization is ideal to attract various kinds of people. Right, or CDO slash analytics organization together. So that's why I think diversity is important, not necessarily, oh, it will produce better results, but because actually the only way you can build a complete CDO team or a complete data and analytics team is indeed if you have all these different uh, characteristics in the team. Celine, um, yeah. we both know that we don't talk about diversity only from a gender perspective. We all know that uh, diversity is about age, different culture, uh, different education, you know, coming from um, a different countries. So, Celine, what's your take? No, definitely. And that's what I've always tried to build my, my teams that are around data and innovation uh, with having a mix of, of you know, various roles. Today in my team, I have like from UX, front-end developer um, to governance people that are, you know, are very stringent about the policy and the data quality and the metrics and, you know, uh, uh, being able to, to coordinate and to implement those policy, uh, you know, within the organization, very like teacher-like type of profile, I would say. And, and then you have the more exploratory data scientists that would do, okay, what can we do with the data? Um, a lot of them have, you know, of course, innovation uh, uh, mindset. Uh, for me, the most important is the mindset. So, of course, there are, when I'm recruit uh, data engineer or even data scientists, there are just strong technical skills that are needed, but anything can be learned. And, and I was discussing with one of my previous data scientists not long ago, and he told me, you know what, like I've been in that, in that, world for, in that field for 
like 10 years. But now I realize that the people that are get, just getting out of school get more knowledge than I do because he spent his, you know, he spent his day working on, on, on doing a lot of PowerPoint presentation and, and whatever. And he's like, there's a guy get, just getting out of school that has much more knowledge in deep learning than I will ever have because he has like spent the last three years, you know, building deep learning models and other. And so um, uh, what is also amazing in the field of data is that um, it's not as much, you know, the experience that you have in a certain role or in a certain organization. It's really much more about your capacity to constantly challenge yourself and upskill yourself. You know, like um, when we're working with my data management team right now, you know, like we have policy on data quality. I'm like, okay, fine. We got like word policy region on data quality. How do we ensure that now we do policy as code? How do you code your policy? So we can implement this in, you know, uh, uh, across the organization. How do we make it operationalized, you know, and, and trying to uh, mix some, um, you know, data scientists, data analysts with uh, uh, with control people, and put them in a room together uh, with a with a UX specialist, and telling them, okay, now you reinvent the process, and you and you try to decide what is our target state, where we want to be, and how we'll be able to scale the you know the the the, the governance of the organization through code, and and the other way around, you know, like um, um I have a, my data privacy officer. Uh, we've been working with the data scientists in order to identify the sensitive NPI data within some data set and. Sam, you know, we don't we, we, we do this through um, through a code method and, and looking at uh, our design thinking. And um, it's not, because data scientists has this, you know, sometime uh, a default of, OK, I'm going to I'm going to build a model. <laughs> That's great. But if you're not able to implement it, there's no value for the business. And, you know, like if, if you give a set of data to um, data scientists or analysts, they can spend like months, you know, exploring the data, you know, without 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 having like real real timeline. So you need also to have like project management type of people. There is a role that is growing in each organization. We call them the AI translator or data translator, whatever you want. But it's it's a kind of, okay, how do I bring that data uh, product to life, you know, from an ID to a full operationalization, going through the various step of, you know, experimentation and, and re-engineering the process and, and educating the people and doing the overall change management to the people that will be using the, that. So definitely a, a good data team is a, is a data team that is diverse in terms of gender, of skill set, of age, and but the most important is the willingness to keep learning and the willingness to you know look at the future and how can we prepare the organization for the future. This is great. Uh, one last question. I would be very much interested as this role is changing so much and um, it depends on the maturity of the organization, on a business needs, and on the level of data democratization in the organization. What is the, for you, from your perspective, one key skill that a chief data officer needs to have going forward? And what would be your um, kind of new skill to take up in the next year or two? Shamik, any, any ideas? I think the one I'm, I'm going to steal from Celine, but I do firmly believe that it is it is one of the few roles at the C-level where every year I end up saying, but that was last year. I have so facts have changed and I've changed my view. So the ability to not just learn, but to actually tell yourself, I actually did that wrong. I, I need to const because there is no track record that you can look upon. There's no 20 years of CA or a decade of or, or sorry, a century of CFOs uh, to to tap your expertise on. So the humility to know that what you know is not enough 
and and you have to constantly learn and the ability to change with that learning is probably the single most thing personally for me that on a more technical front i am going to spend a lot more time understanding more about not necessarily fairness but the explainability around ai and how how to actually make it technically work that's my personal area of focus self uh, reflection that's what you say that's that's yeah. that's Celine, what about you? Yes, I'm extol what I was going to say, but adaptability is definitely what yes. you need to do. Uh, adaptability in order to be able to, you know, focus on all new problem and, you know, being able to like reach out, make this also, I think that the CEO, once the maturity of the organization um, in, in terms of data um, literacy and usage of the data do grow, um, the CEO will have a, a, an expanded role, which is more linked to a partnership, you know, now we were very focused on, on the internal data but um, what really has value for us and, and for a lot of organization are those external data you know how do we actually achieve data sharing with another partnership organization in order to grow our business together or develop potentially new um, value added product you know for our customer and our boss organization so how do we monetize and and value the data it was one of my previous job to monetize data when i used to work for connected car but um there's no value of data by itself and you don't sell your data it's not it's not the business model that is going with it um i mean you have like big companies that are selling data and it's a real <laughs> full-time job to do that uh, the question is really how do you get to share data with another organization in order to create a new value or a new product you know and this is yep. i believe the next step so um uh, you know skill set about um negotiation being able to set a partnership you know what are the threshold being able to negotiate a partnership in order to define a framework or how do we start sharing data pilot industrialize where is the revenue going you know when a new product is created from two different data set owned by two different organization So I believe this is kind of the future once the once the organization has reached the proper level of maturity to first manage their own internal data um then after they're able to um expansionally monetize it through you know creation of of new product and partnership so monetization uh in a collaborative way correct across the organizations that's fantastic across industry even before because I do really believe across that across industry across industry you know yeah. like you could do many thing if you were able to merge i don't know let's say like financial data with healthcare data you know like there's a lot of thing that could be done to benefit the customer and potentially both organization um so there's a lot of value in 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 not having the data siloed i think one of our role today in chief data officer is kind of break the silos within the organization you know today um data are stored in various system owned by various organization and one of our main role is actually to break those silos internally the question the next phase i believe would be how do we break the silos externally in order to make the overall you know industry more efficient or, or create new 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 product um or value added for the customer that's fantastic and i think this is where we see the future it's exciting i want to thank you so much uh, saline and shamik for joining us today um i hope uh, the listeners had a good time of understanding what the chief data officer role is about and i'm definitely seeing several topics we can continue discussing so hopefully we will see you here soon thank you so much and have a good day pleasure thank you. bye Thanks Thank very you much. Guys. Cheers.